Good Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston. The co-host, Charlie, at least he says he's a co-host, is not here today once again. But don't worry, I've got David McGarry, a commentator for Young Voices, back on. It's been a couple months since we talked. David, how you doing? I am doing great. It is fantastic to be back on as a uh, temporary co-host. Exactly. Now, last time I was going to ask, you know, last time we talked, we were talking about how Elon Musk had just done a poll about whether or not he should remain the CEO of Twitter. And I think that it just happened like the day before we spoke. And from what I gathered in our conversation, he would not still be the CEO by this time. But it seems like he just hasn't found anyone to to fill his shoes yet. What's going on with that? Yeah, it's either that or um, something that we we should be used to with Elon at this point, which is that we can't take what he says uh, seriously. Maybe we should take it a little bit more uh, a little bit more figuratively. And maybe it um, tur- maybe it turns out he actually did not expect the poll to say that he should give up being the CEO, and he never planned on doing it in the first place, and and he's just gonna just kind of act like it never happened. Yeah, well, I mean, I just am quite gratified to see that he's finding out that despite all of his tweets saying Vox Populi, Vox Day, <laughs> uh, that the word of the people is the word of God, um, that that can really come back and bite you in the ass at times. I guess maybe he thinks that the word of God was wrong this one particular time, I guess. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, we talked about whether or not we were going to go over any other news of the day. I told you I was sick of hearing people talk about this Trump thing already, other than the fact that the that they're rolling down Trump's driveway about to arrest them right now, from what I can tell online. Anything else going on in the news that you've seen? Yeah, um, there there's not too much. We can, at some point, we can talk on the latest news um, about Ron DeSantis's Stop Woke Act. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a minor, but still, uh, still notable development in the courts over at the 11th Circuit there. Um, that we can touch on. And then another thing to watch, which is a project that I've been working on, a a little bit more of a lengthy piece than what we're going to talk about today. But over at Biden's Department of Labor, um, there's a there's a struggle going on between Congress and the administration about a new rule regarding ESG investing for private pension funds, which should be playing out over the next week or the next few days. Yeah, I heard someone mention that, but I do not have the details on it yet. Maybe you can fill me in. On, uh, on that whole thing. So we'll we'll make sure we talk about the Stop Woke Act and we'll talk about the Department of Labor. Uh, specifically today, we're going to talk about this uh, piece you had that Reason published talking about James Madison. I guess it was his birthday when you wrote this. You put happy birthday to, uh, to James Madison on here. Would you say that uh, the the government, the our central authority has not quite turned out the way that he envisioned yeah, that that's quite the understatement. Um, when you when you go back and and when you read the Federalist Papers, or if you read um, some of the founders' other writings, if you read the Constitution itself, it becomes very plain that the federal government was not intended to be an all powerful, all centralized entity that ruled the country from a swamp somewhere in between uh, Maryland and Virginia. Um, instead, it was intended to perform two primary functions, and they were conduct foreign policy and make and uh, or I should say mediate between uh, between the states um, as you remember one of the 
one of the were one of the factors that led into the Constitutional Convention were actually uh, territorial disputes between the states and water rights disputes in between the states because, you know, obviously, if Virginia and Maryland are arguing over something, neither one is going to be a neutral arbiter. And at the time, the existing continental, or excuse me, the existing Articles of Confederation, um, or under the existing Articles of Confederation, the federal government wasn't powerful enough to resolve that conflict. So, this is where the the framers of the Constitution um, and Hamilton and Madison and John Jay in the Federalist Papers laid out the case that we needed this strong central government to maintain domestic peace and to keep international peace as well. And then the and then if you read Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution, you will find all the other enumerated powers of Congress. Um, and those powers essentially were things or duties that just had to be done. Um, by one overarching entity. For example, copyright. It makes no sense to have different copyright regimes in different states. Too much chaos. Um, but besides that, the day-to-day governing of the states was explicitly intended to be left to the state houses. Um, and that is the entire purpose of enumerated powers, right? The 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 point of writing out what is it, 15, 17 powers in Article 1, Section 8, is that all other powers, as clarified in the Bill of Rights, are reserved to the states or to the people. Now, how do we get from that, which sounds great, to uh, what we have right now? And I guess if you're going to tell me that, it would take a really long time. But if you could boil that down into uh, a couple steps that really destroyed that idea, what would you say it is? Yeah, so the, the, the real short answer is human nature. Um, Tocqueville actually talks about this in Democracy in America. Um, the especially democratic peoples mean mainly meaning just when when the people, you know, capital capital T capital P, are in charge. Um, it's a lot more attractive to centralize power. It's a lot it's a lot sexier to say, "Hey, I'm going to steamroll into Washington and make everything better for everyone," instead of, uh, "No, I'm going to do the laborious and boring work of fighting my way through." however many uh, state houses today 50 but obviously back then there were far fewer states anyway um and then if we to give a little bit more context that i think is also pretty important is that a lot of this changed after the civil war right um first off because of the 14th amendment the federal government got involved in enforcing um or i mean it got involved in enforcing uh, certain constitutional provisions onto the states right the privileges and immunities um, of U.S. citizens were given to, or I should say, were insured by the federal government to all citizens of all states, which I think is actually a really great thing because there were egregious civil rights violations that were happening. But nonetheless, just as a historical and legal matter, that really changes the constitutional structure um, from that point forward. And then the second point I would touch on is just the bipartisan um, progressive movement. And that's capital P progressive of the late 19th and early 20th century, um, where a lot of folks like Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Delano Roosevelt consolidated power to Washington. Yeah, I I guess maybe I say it wrong sometimes when I talk about the job I think the federal government has. It is I think they should be able to protect natural rights or negative rights. And we always use uh, we'll use an easy argument like um Alabama legalizes slavery next week. I think the federal government can come in 
and say, well, no, you you can't do that. I think that I think most people would agree that uh, it would be the federal government's job to stop that from happening, that they would they would have the authority to do so, even if a state voted to do that. So how do we get from my simple idea that they should protect natural rights to, I guess, well, now they're protecting what we would call positive rights, uh, taking from from people and giving to others. And uh, they use that commerce clause quite a bit, too. I really wish we could go back in time and take that thing out of there. What do you think? Well, I will spare you the the 10 hour rant that I have on um, Wickard v. Filburn and uh, uh, the other Supreme Court decisions that expanded the Commerce Clause to mean whatever a majority in Congress and the president feels like it means. Um, I, I mean, it, it's it's the Commerce Clause has really been bastardized, which is just it's too bad as a matter of liberty and also just a matter of jurisprudence, because it's um, what's been done to the Commerce Clause is entirely uh, been a rationalization of folks who want Washington to extend power. And whether or not you think that that extension of power is good, and of course I don't, the legal argument um, for what the Commerce Clause has become is so flimsy that it borders on non-existent. Um, I think, I think, like I said, that, that goes more to the progressive era. Um, and basically the notion of that, the popular notion of that time was that experts would just be a small group of experts would be the proper way to organize the government. Um, it, it's, we have echoes of this now, um, especially on, on, on the left where folks think that if we just get the smartest quote unquote unbiased, um, people with advanced degrees in a room, they can technocratically engineer society in a way that will be best for everyone. And if the people, and I really hate using that phrase, but I'll, I'll use it again. But if the people, uh, capital P, don't like it, then they're obviously not quite enlightened enough to understand what's going on. And they just need to submit to this expert, this expert class. This, uh, this reminds me of some of the stuff I read in Federalist uh, 68. Would that would that be what it is? Where we talk about this little group of experts that's uh, that's going to be able to uh, make better decisions than the people. I don't know if uh, that's Hamilton, right? I, I believe. Maybe you know your Federalist papers better than I do. Not sure. I know them. I know the I know the Federalist papers written by Madison a little bit better than the ones by Hamilton. So I'll, we'll <laughs> say you're right on that. You don't one. study your Hamilton that well. Okay, I see. Uh, no. So what I want to figure out here is. Um, when I try to figure out what's going on in the country and how to solve it, because man, is it a mess out there. Uh, when I try to come up with ways to actually solve this, like, well, we're not going to solve this with one big central authority in all 50 states and all these people agreeing on everything. I just don't see that that's ever going to be possible. And so then I'm like, well, I, I don't really want to, a lot of people are talking about national divorce. Um, I don't know if that's the best way to go, but I would like it if we could think more as if we were 50 separate countries and I didn't have to worry so much about what California was doing all the time or or Oregon or something like that, and they wouldn't worry so much about what Tennessee was doing. Um, I really think the founders had it right that we were supposed to act as if we were all these little individual nations and we just wanted a defense and to, uh, to negotiate you know, with foreign powers, all of that. And then not all of the other things. I don't think we're ever going to agree on it. So is a national divorce the only way to go about this? How do we get back to this? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, uh, the folks calling for national divorce have clearly haven't thought these issues through, or if they have, um, they aren't serious thinkers, in my personal opinion. Um, what you what you put forward 
is a robust federalism. Now, I think that there's arguments to be made that maybe we need a little bit more national cohesion um, than the nation had pre-Civil War, what with prominent figures like uh, Jefferson, uh, Adams, going forward, Robert E. Lee referring to their personal states as their, their nation or their country. Now, I think, I think a little bit more national cohesion would be good, but if we decentralize powers or excuse me, if we decentralize um, power to the state houses, um, it allows people to engage with a smaller community, uh, with a community of people who are more like them, who have whose values are more similar to their own, um, and make decisions in smaller groups. And just the f- your vote counts more as a mathematical matter in a pool of a thousand than it does in a pool of a hundred thousand. Um, and of course, we'll still have issues with ur- urban rural divides. Those are those are real those are real demographic factors. But I think it would go a lot towards um, I think it would go go a, a long way towards fixing some of these tensions if we're able to decentralize. And also, there'd be a right of exit, right? If you don't like the way the things are run in in, in communist California, you can go to the whatever <laughs> epithet the left slings at the right to describe Alabama, right? Um, you can, you can, you can make these decisions for yourself and find a community that's consonant with your values. If you don't like commie California, you can go to fascist Florida. That's probably, thank you. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's what Put you that can on do. A t-shirt. Now, um, I, we've said this a bunch since the pandemic, but I really, I, I really hope that what we saw during the pandemic and the lockdowns and different policies, uh, from even from city to city, not just state to state would show everyone how important your local government was. And I will always give the example that in the county I live in, which is Davidson County, which is Metro Nashville, uh, it was, uh, they locked down some things. They required masks. They required stuff like that. But I'm actually closer to this town that's in another county uh, that would be more of a red county, I guess. And when I went there, it was like nothing ever changed. The restaurants were open. People weren't wearing masks everywhere. It just kind of looked normal. And I really realized how important it is for your, your city council and your, your county board members and, and all those people. And like you said, I've got way more sway with those people than I do, first off, even with the people that are running the states. But then the people in Washington, I mean, I got nothing when it comes to them. Yeah, no, I, that's a that is a perfect point. And in in COVID, we saw the acceleration of the exodus from places like California, and more specifically, places like Los Angeles. Um, the the something that I, I would really like to see more of, um, or at least more coverage of, um, is a concept that I picked up at a Manhattan Institute conference that I went to, which was about state governments. And this was fascinating to me. And they, they brought in, a, or excuse me, is a city governments, and they brought in a bunch of mayors um, to speak. And something that a recurring theme was that these mayors are competing for citizens at this point. They, in their offices, realize that if they are not attractive to business, if they are not attractive to, um, to uh, immigrants, if they're, if they're not attractive to all the California expats, um, <laughs> they are, they're at a distinct disadvantage um, moving into the highly mobile 21st century. So it's competition. Our federal government doesn't, competition. doesn't really have a lot of, I mean, there is competition clearly with the federal government, but um, definitely on a local level, there's a lot more competition. I wanted to ask you about one more thing when it comes to the national divorce. Now, the the libertarians listening 
are really not going to like me or you for this more than likely with what I can tell is our general stance on national divorce. What I've said uh, frequently is that that sounds great. We'll just separate and we'll all be happy and things will be fine. Okay, here's what would actually happen. Even if there wasn't violence, there would be essentially trade blockades on everyone. If you can't produce every single thing in your state, the federal government of the United States of America can clearly stop everyone around the world from doing any trade with you whatsoever, and you would not be able to make it. There's just a nonviolent approach right there that to me makes it virtually impossible. Maybe that's me just giving up and giving in because they've convinced me. But what are some of the other quick reasons that this actually couldn't happen? I think the largest reason is that it, it, I, I've yet to see anyone fully I've yet to see anyone in favor of national divorce fully lay out exactly how it would work. The ties that bind the 50 states to each other, to the federal government, um, the ties legal, the ties cultural, all of these things create a web of interconnectedness that must be accounted for if we're talking talking about a serious policy proposal here, which again, I don't believe that we are. Um, and I think, and I think what you said kind of hits the nail on the head. There's, there's so many ways, commercial and otherwise, possibly violent. You know, depending on 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 which borders we're we're at. Um, but no, but there's there's so many ways in in which this would be very unworkable. And while I'm sympathetic to the idea that, as a administrative matter, the United States is too large to um, to to govern optimally, shall we say? Um, we we don't get to we don't get to create a year zero. This is something that was very wrong with the with with Thomas Paine and with the French revolutionaries. We don't get to come and create a year zero exactly as we wish it were. We're stuck with the world that we have, um, and fortunately, we do know federalism does work. the 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 antebellum American experiment, um, with the huge and looming exception of the slavery question um was a roaring success what america did in with our decentralized to the state houses and then also decentralized further like you were saying to the people in um in communities and this is another thing to tocqueville talk or tocqueville talks about right he speaks about um uh uh local governance as the same as um the the laboratory for to teach scientists right people learn how to be good republican citizens small r republican citizens they learn how to engage in small d democratic governance through local participation um and this model worked incredibly well and so i don't i don't see a good reason why we don't take advantage of the lessons of history instead of trying to trying to swim against the some other lessons of history from bloodier regimes that we should really be paying attention to. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. So getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process. I don't think I'm all the way there yet, but I'm getting close. But we're always growing and changing. One thing I've learned a lot about is self-awareness and then learning how to understand situations from different points of view. So putting yourself in someone else's shoes and understanding why or how they feel the way they do about something. Now, sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way that we do in specific situations until we talk through it with people and figure out why it is that that's triggering whatever that feeling is. And that that's important, especially 
for the things that we talk about every day. Well, BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey to self-discovery from wherever you are. Now, I've used therapy in the past. Charlie is still using BetterHelp on a weekly basis, I believe, and I can tell you it really did help. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire, you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash GML today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash GML. So do you think the real the real answer here is for people to truly get more involved in their local politics and work from the ground up in your in your city and maybe then to the state instead of trying to control everything top down centrally? I know it's not as cool uh, to 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 campaign for the city council or, or whatever it is as it would yeah. be for a federal office. Uh, but is that really the answer? Certainly. Um, and, and it's in honestly to, to maybe appease the libertarians, I'll say decentralize it past the level of, of the city, right? Volunteer for your neighborhood council. Um, go join, I don't know, join a bowling league, join some kind of community institution, um, both politically and in the private sphere. The, a large amount of the way that we as human beings fulfill ourselves and gain meaning is by involving ourselves, by being needed, and by making a difference to the people around us. Um, and that is so much better. Um, that is so much better done on on a on a smaller local level, and it's so much more attainable there um, than it is trying to crusade off to Washington to get mired in the swamp and the bureaucratic machine. Now, on the other side of things, uh, we just mentioned Florida a second ago, and uh, Ron DeSantis, someone who uh, sometimes I agree with him, sometimes I don't. Uh, but what happened? With the Stop Woke Act, and if you if you could give me just a brief synopsis on the on what that is, because I'm not real deep into my Florida politics, uh, but maybe you could tell me what that is. Sure. So the Stop Woke Act um, is a is a is a Florida law. Um, it was passed, I believe, it was April of 2022, um, and and basically, it's there's lots of provisions surrounding education, but it gained prominence or ridicule <laughs> from, from certain corners um, for two reasons. And, and basically what those reasons were is that it restricted the speech of college professors and university professors. Um, and it also restricted the speech of private employers in the state of Florida. And it did so by listing out eight concepts that were regretted, that were related to race, sex, other concepts of identity. Um, and, essentially saying that either professors or employers could not during the course of their duties um, take the affirmative position on these eight concepts. Now I should say some of these, some of these concepts uh, are things essentially saying, don't, you shouldn't come out in favor of saying one race is better than another stuff like that, which is fairly uncontroversial, essentially uncontroversial. Mm. Um, but then some of them, some of them weren't um, for example, one of these, one of these eight, was basically saying it was basically the concept behind the affirmative action that you can't favor certain people or discriminate against other people to advance causes of equity. Now I'm no fan of affirmative action. Personally, I I'm a big, 
um, content of character over color or skin guy. Um, but I don't think that it's the government's place. And going back to that 14th Amendment, the free freedom of speech was incorporated to the states by the 14th Amendment. So the, the state governments uh, can't abridge freedom of speech either. And it is and this Stop Woke Act um, has drawn a lot of criticism from parts much of the right um, and also just the left generally um, for these limitations that is put on the speech of professors and then also employers. So university professors, does that mean private universities as well? Are we talking state like uh is it everyone so yeah so this was specifically regarding uh public universities okay um but here's here's the thing though um public university professors enjoy speech rights under the doctrines of academic freedom this has been litigated in the courts this is fairly settled um as these as these things go even if you are working at a public university you are not um or I should say the government can't simply tell you what to say the, the way that the government can dictate curricula for K through 12 education. Um, it's still a, it's still a violation of the 14th amendment to, uh, to crack down on the speech of, of university professors. I would strongly disagree with the rules uh, prohibiting private employers uh, for sure. I don't, uh, I, I didn't realize that that was in the stop woke act. Uh, I guess I hadn't looked into it that much, uh, but that's been one of the things that I've seen DeSantis do that we just can't get behind, uh, even when it came to things like vaccine mandates and saying employers couldn't do those as well. I mean, that's not a very that's that's not a super popular libertarian position either. But I happen to believe that those people are private business owners and that you can choose to not be there if you don't want to be there and that they can set their own standards uh, for who they're going to do business with or who they're going to hire. Uh, so, yeah, I actually uh, kind of agree that this was uh, that the, they stopped the Stop Woke Act. Is that there's two negatives there? I guess that means that they're promoting woke then, I guess. Well, th- there's a difference between promoting woke and allowing woke. Um, and I'm I like you. I'm sympathetic to a lot of what DeSantis is doing in Florida. Um, however, he's decided he's 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 come around the bend and he's decided that not only will he in his capacity as governor um promote what his conception of conservative values say in k-12 through education which is his prerogative um but he is also bent on um forcing everyone else to adhere to his um to his conception of conservatism as well he laid it out very clearly in his in the speech in which he said uh, Florida is where woke goes to die. Mm-hmm. As a government official, it is not your um, it is not your place, and is frankly illegal for you to attempt to kill off an ideology. I'm sorry that that is <laughs> what the plain text of the first, the first Amendment says, and the First Amendment jurisprudence backs it up. Um, and again, I I don't like most of these concepts that I talked about being um, being delineated in the Stop Woke Act. I don't like the way that progressives view race. I think it's anti-individualist and I think it has some real problems. And when it, when these concepts are expressed in a certain way with, to a certain degree, they in themselves become de facto racist. So I am no fan of these. However, I am a bigger fan of the first amendment. The ACLU was right to defend the, the, the Nazis who marched in Skokie in the United States of America, the government does not get to um, involve itself um, in delineating truth versus falsehood. 
for the private citizen, full stop. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I just actually did a, a debate at a libertarian convention last week, a couple weekends ago with Charlie, where I argued that the government should not be enforcing uh, a culture, that they should not be getting involved in the culture war, unless you're talking about uh, physical harm, protecting natural rights for individuals. But uh, we don't need the government doing this because then you're, it's not the specific thing, woke and whatever whatever that is specifically, um, you're saying that the government can enforce this a culture and who's to say that someone else isn't going to take over Florida and say the same thing about whatever your right wing culture is afterwards. I don't want them to have that power. And that's how we got here in the first place, if you ask me. No, that's a that's the perfect point. Um, and as I as I write in my piece uh, on on Madison, the, the reason why the founders or the, the framers wrote the constitution as they did is that they were trying to limit the power of majority over dissenting minorities. They're trying to prevent a bunch of people getting together, making bad decisions and then enforcing their preferences and violating the rights of the people uh, who disagree. Um, and something that really never ceases to baffle me uh, in Florida um, but also at the at the federal level, looking at some of the the powers, for example, that some Republicans want to give to the FTC or other administrative agencies, um, the Democrats in the in the liberals or whatever the progressives, however we want to label them, the people who don't like Ron DeSantis and Ted Cruz will will wield that power at some point. The people who despise the MAGA movement, the people who um, all 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 of again Ron DeSantis, Ted Cruz. Um, Tucker Carlson, the people who 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 despise that worldview in the P, in the Fox News watchers or the the OANN watchers or whatever, they will take the reins of authority at some point. They will have the power, and they will not be. Um, they're they're already in many cases more than more than ready to violate the Constitution and try to uh, uh, wield that power very uh, very heavy handedly. Um, and giving them the added justification of, oh, the Republicans already did it, so we can't too, just seems really, really, really incandescently stupid to me. And then the cycle just keeps going and keeps going. And uh, that yeah. we got to get out of this this circle eventually. But uh, it, all these ideas, it's like they're built on the idea that uh, your party is going to be in power forever and you don't ever have to worry about the other guy getting control of this. Uh, but I think people both on the left and the right should see, uh, you know, Trump was president. That should scare the hell out of people on the left. And Biden is president, and that should scare the hell out of people on the right. Let's just not give him the power. How about that? Well, we'll take care of that problem. Now, do you have do you have a minute to tell me about this Department of Labor thing before we get yeah, off let's here? Yeah, do it. Okay. So you said you're working on the piece right now with this ESG investing. What's going on with that? Okay. So ESG investing um, <clears throat> is or I should say ESG, which stands for environmental, social, and governance. Um, it's, it's a concept that's very poorly defined, but basically what it means um, is that when investing, money managers should take into account environmental, social, and governance factors. And, and really what that breaks down to a lot of times um, is left-wing priorities. Now, there's a couple different versions of ESG. Some of some folks who, who advance it say that... Um, we should sacrifice returns for these ESG priorities or to incorporate these ESG priorities. Um, others say that by incorporating these ESG priorities will actually get better long-term results. I think that's wrong. I think that's just sort of, I think that's generally incorrect um, and doesn't understand how trade-offs and economic work, economics works. Um, 
But anyway, this has become a fad in, in investing, um, which has drawn a lot of pushback from the right. And I think justifiably a lot of pushback from the right, um, because we're seeing a lot of these ESG funds not actually perform um, at the rate that the market the market is performing. So flash forward to, to sort of skip a lot of the nitty gritty details. Uh, the Biden Department of Labor released guidance or released uh, rulemaking saying that ESG could be considered by the managers of private pension funds. Now, this gets a little bit overhyped because really what Biden is saying is we're not, we're not changing the fiduciary responsibility that these managers have, but we're just being very clear that in our opinion, ESG might be part of this, right? They're, they're just being very clear and saying, we think that you should probably be thinking about ESG when you're making these investment decisions. Um, because again, this goes back to the idea, which I consider to be misguided, that um, ESG factors will really uh, up, uh, up the returns <clears throat> for, for these funds long-term. Uh, the Republicans pushed back on this rulemaking from labor. They passed a congressional resolution that would basically nullify it, and Biden is expected to veto it at some point. Um, and that's, that's the down and dirty about where we are. I did just see a post saying that Biden just did his first veto. So uh, I guess that's what that's it is. That's it then. Okay. All right. So we vetoed that then. And so that, so what does that mean? Basically that they can continue with the ESG investing, that they're not going to yeah. be able to be blocked from doing that. And that's, that's a tough one. Yeah. It's a tough one because you never know what the market's going to do. Uh, and, and so as someone who is trading, you can say, well, we don't want people to go towards ESG because it doesn't, doesn't perform as well. But you can't guarantee me other stuff is going to perform uh, really well either. I don't think that ESG stuff will perform as well uh, without the government taking all of those people's money and putting it into specific, say, climate goals and, and things like that. Um, but that's not that's not really performing well uh, for the people when yeah. you have to take their money to push those companies in the first place. Uh, but, but anyway, I... I kind of get the argument. I kind of see how it's difficult to say you can't invest in that because uh, it doesn't have as good a returns when you can actually never guarantee returns. Um, it's kind of a, I don't know, tricky scenario, but I guess important enough that he's done his first veto now. Yeah, well, let, let me tell you sort of why this, this free market advocate uh, mm -hmm. has a real problem with what Biden has done in this case. Um, I think that people generally should be able to invest uh, as they see fit, and then we should let the market sort it out. However, mm -hmm. as I said, the Biden rule is not too much different than its predecessor in the actual text of the uh, in, in the actual text of the rule, right? So technically, ESG funds can be, or excuse me, ESG priorities can be incorporated in this rule and in the preceding rule that it replaced, as long as those considerations. Um, benefit the rates of return of the of the of the retirement fund, right? So there's not actually too much difference, and this is why I was saying saying that some of the Republican criticisms of the new rule have been overblown. But here's the big difference, and this is where I uh, have a problem with it. Uh, the new rulemaking is really political theater. It's political messaging. Political. It's a political advertisement, which is mm -hmm. saying, "Hello, market." We, as the government, think that you should be looking towards ESG. We're not actually changing the rules because of statutory limitations. We're not really changing the rules to uh, say that you can invest or can't invest in any one thing. We're just saying that we're going to look very, uh, we're going to look very, uh, we will look with a friendly face <laughs> on ESG investments that may or may not be dubious 
um, to hard-nosed, unbiased observers. All right. I get it. I see the problem uh, for, for sure. Uh, all right. Now, you said you're working on that piece right now. Is that, is that correct? That's true. That is true. Working on that. Okay, cool. I'll be looking for that when it's done. Um, I really, I really enjoyed this conversation just like our last one. You need to hit me up more often and come on here. I mean, Charlie misses time all the time. You can come on and be a co-host any, anytime you want. All right. Now, where can people go to, uh, to follow what you're doing? Sure. You can go onto the Young Voices website and find my, um, and find my uh, page and you can find everything that I've written through them, all of my media hits through them. And then you can also follow me on Twitter at David B. McGarry. All right, David, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I think everyone's going to love this one. And uh, everyone go listen to the old one as well. Go follow on Twitter and go to the Young Voices page. And uh, David, you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. I've had a great time.